For another perspective on adjuvant systemic therapy, I met with Ms. Alicia Stein, an oncology nurse who works with Dr. Vogel. Ms. Stein began our conversation by commenting on the challenges of patient education in the adjuvant setting. When I'm talking to these women, especially on their first visits, I explain to them that the horror stories they've heard from people who A, have never been diagnosed or treated with breast cancer are just that horror stories, they're myths, that they need to wipe those things from their mind, erase them completely, and look around the room. I will bring them back to the actual infusion room where they'll see other women being treated who are conversing, talking on the phone, watching a movie, and relaxing, essentially, and show them that this is what it's like for our patients here who are receiving treatments. And then I talk to them about the difference between being treated in the curative setting versus those patients who are being treated with metastatic disease, that this is our opportunity to treat and be aggressive and get them through this and hopefully have a cure. How do you explain what the idea is behind adjuvant therapy in terms of the fact that their scans are all negative, et cetera, yet they're still going to be receiving treatment? I explained to them that essentially our goal here is to destroy any microscopic cells that we can't see any cells that may have broken free and could be circulating throughout their bodies. I know there are many different kinds of chemotherapy that are used in the adjuvant situation. What are some of the ways you prepare patients to receive adjuvant chemotherapy? If it's prior to their actual treatment, I'll sit down and I'll go over some of the drugs they'll be receiving and some of the corresponding side effects with those agents. If it's actually their day of treatment, I think their mindset is completely different. They're so overwhelmed that If they hear 5% of what you're saying, that's a lot of information. So at that point in time, I really do try to minimize what I bombard them with and provide them with a very generic handwritten form of instructions that point out the basics to call for any nausea and vomiting, call for any diarrhea, call for any constipation, certainly call for a fever greater than 100.4 or 100.5, the red flags for oncology nurses and oncology professionals so that they have a general guide. And I think that patients go home with the assumption that they have cancer, they've received chemotherapy, they should be having diarrhea, or they should be vomiting and and don't report these side effects, and that's how they get in trouble. What do you think the patient's greatest concerns are before they get started? Alopecia and nausea and vomiting are their largest concerns. What do you say to them about both of those things? With the alopecia, I show them around the room, essentially, to most of the women who are there receiving chemotherapy who have their wigs on, who 99% of the time you would never know. You would never know. In regards to dealing with nausea and vomiting, I talk to them about current medications that we have available, anti-emetic regimens that we didn't have available years ago. And once again, I go back to dispelling the myths of people being profoundly ill as they were years ago. And listening to horror stories from people who've never had treatment is the number one obstacle you face. These patients come in with a misconception of what their treatment is going to be like and what their resources are to get through their treatments. If a patient asked you, let's say somebody who's getting started on AC, common therapy that's utilized, or maybe even something more complicated like TAC, TAC, docetaxel being added in, if they say to you, what's the chance that I am going to have really, in spite of the medications, a major problem with nausea and vomiting, what do you say to them? 
You know, I try to do an assessment of what certain patients' risk factors are for nausea and vomiting. Number one, these are females. The female population, essentially, that we're dealing with puts them at higher risk. If they've had children, did they have hyperemesis during their pregnancies? Do they get seasick? Do they drink alcohol? These are some of the corresponding risk factors for patients who are most likely to have a bad experience, regardless of antiemetics. So I go over some of those risk factors and try to narrow things down for them discuss their regimen in terms of whether it's a moderately emetogenic chemotherapy regimen or a highly emetogenic. And for the most part, the regimens we use are moderately emetogenic, but we are very aggressive in preventing nausea and vomiting within our practice with the use of AMEND, Aloxy plus Decadron, and we're very aggressive, I have to say. What's the bottom line, though, in terms of how often, in spite of all that, a patient will still have a serious problem? You know, maybe one out of ten. One of the things that's come about in the last couple of years to try to help women avoid chemotherapy or make better decisions about chemotherapy is Oncotype DX assay. I'm curious what your experience has been with that. We've been using Oncotype since it actually was put out there, and I think it's a fabulous advance in breast cancer care. For those of our patients who have come in and had their Oncotype score, fearing chemotherapy and gotten a low-risk score and not had to come back for treatment. It's been a great experience for those women who thought they might not be getting chemotherapy and had a moderate to high risk and ended up in treatment. Not such a great experience, but I think it's a wonderful tool and a great advancement for us. What are the situations that you tend to use the Oncotype assay? Well, these are patients who are node-negative, hormone-receptor-positive patients that we see the Oncotypes being used in. And I guess what's challenging there is you know they're going to get hormone therapy. They're node negative, so their risk is not as high as it would be with node positive. So then the absolute benefit of chemotherapy is a little bit questionable to start with. You're trying to narrow down who to give it to in that situation. Right, whereas years ago before Oncotype, you scratch your head and take a guess. At least it's some kind of prognostic tool that we can use to make an informed decision and help our patients make informed decisions. One of the things that has been talked a lot about in breast cancer for many years is this concept of women being willing to go through chemotherapy for very modest potential, you know, lowering of their risk of recurrence. Can you talk a little bit about what you've observed in terms of women's attitudes facing that question? I think that when you're dealing with this particular population who are adamant in receiving chemotherapy for that minimal benefit, in their mind, that minimal benefit is the maximum benefit. And neither you nor I or anybody's going to be able to change that mindset. And I think it's a matter of respecting their wishes. You know, one of the things that I've heard a lot of people talk about is this idea of not wanting to ever have any regret that they didn't do everything possible if they do develop a recurrence. Is that something you hear verbalized a lot? Absolutely. It's a small window of opportunity there, and in their mind, once you've gone forward, you can't go back. And I understand that mindset, which is also the mindset from oncology providers in being so aggressive and consistent and persistent in the adjuvant setting. But, you know, sometimes I wonder, I mean, there are risks with chemotherapy. People who get cardiomyopathy who die from chemotherapy, it's not very often, but it happens. Certainly, it's not a pleasant experience whether sometimes we put patients in a position where it's very difficult for them to refuse, even though maybe the numbers don't even really add up. 
I think in general, each patient that we treat and each patient that steps into any facility for treatment needs to be looked at individually. They're not clumped together in groups. They're all individual, and it is top to bottom, inside and out. You need to be looking at this patient and evaluating risk versus benefit. One of the things I was thinking is that maybe the archetype, in a sense, because it is quantified and can really qualitatively provide some different kinds of input, almost gives maybe the patient as well as the healthcare professional permission not to take chemo. When emotionally, it's something you feel like you need to do. I think if it's something that's that emotionally, they're that driven, regardless of their archetype resolved, it'll be more of a comfort to know that they have a low risk of reoccurrence And then they had chemotherapy in their minds, lowering their risks even further. Interesting. So then do you tend to utilize the archetype more when the patient's kind of on the fence? It's not even an on-the-fence kind of measuring device. All of our patients who come in who are no negative, hormone receptor positive, are archetyped. Really? So that's a routine thing that you do? It's routine. Hmm. Interesting. Do you see that it's changing the paths that your patients are taking? Comparatively to prior to Oncotypes, where it really is almost a guessing game, the use of adjuvant online as a predictive tool is something that was of benefit, but it's just more of a prognostic indicator of your patient's overall well-being. And just to backtrack a little bit, that adjuvant online computer model, which is for healthcare professionals and not for patients, it was developed by Peter Rabden. You put in a different tumor characteristics and actually get a printout of what to sort of expect statistically. Is that something that a lot of patients want to hear about, that level of detail? I think it depends on which population we're talking about. Patients today are very educated and informed. Information's out there online, and I think if they were to hear you discuss something that they hadn't read about online or something was overlooked that was available to them online, it would be an uncomfortable position for that patient. Now, sort of related to the question of oncotype, which, as you say, is for people with ER-positive tumors, has been the fact that, I guess, the oncotype was developed based on patients who were receiving tamoxifen, which was a few years ago, that was standard of care. And at this point, we now have the option of the aromatase inhibitors in postmenopausal women. What have you observed in terms of side effects and toxicity of the aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen? I think that the side effects are distinctly different. Whereas the tamoxifen, you've got women who've got vaginal bleeding or excessive vaginal discharge. The commonality might be hot flashes, which may be the same on tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitor, or better or worse either way. Really the biggest red flag for these patients on AIs is monitoring their bone density. What have you observed in terms of the arthralgias and the muscle aches, et cetera, with aromatase inhibitors? It is a common complaint. It is. There are times where we have to stop, back off, see if there's an improvement in the arthralgias, and maybe resume or switch AIs. And sometimes it's a juggling effort to get them on an AI where they're not having such discomforts. For the most part, most women are able to cope and get past, you know, we instruct them to exercise, don't sit in one position for a long time, move around. For the most part, most of them tolerate well. For those who don't, you know, we end up switching AIs. Any kind of global thought in terms of tamoxifen versus AIs in terms of overall quality of life that women experience? It's a toss-up. It really is a toss-up. You've got tamoxifen, which is causing vaginal discharge, AIs, which is causing vaginal dryness. I think both can affect sexual function. What about the issue of endometrial cancer? That's a small risk with tamoxifen in postmenopausal women, usually curable. How do patients react to that? 
I think initially when you hear uterine cancer after you've just been treated for breast cancer, it's a scary thing to hear. So when informing patients of these risks and possible consequences of tamoxifen, that the risks versus benefits really clearly need to be defined. What about the risk of thrombosis, drug, pulmonary embolus? How do you see patients weighing that out in terms of it being increased with tamoxifen? I think for the most part in our practice, we were using aspirin prophylactically with those patients in hopes to prevent these things from happening. But it really is a toss-up with tamoxifen versus AIs. You've got bone density issues, issues of hyperlipidemia. It's a toss-up. I think that ultimately it's the big picture we have to look at. There's not a medication that you can take at any stage of the game, over-the-counter or prescribed, that isn't without side effects and risks. I'm curious what your experience has been with NAB paclitaxel or Braxane. We've had docetaxel and taxotere, paclitaxel, taxol for quite a few years in breast cancer, and now we have a third taxane. What's your experience been with that, and how do you think it compares to the other two? From a nursing perspective, not having your patient have to take excessive amounts of steroids and other pre-medications to prevent anaphylaxis and hypersensitivity reactions is a huge benefit for patients and for nurses. Your patients are in the treatment room for a fraction of the time, and that's very significant. The last thing they want to do is spend another hour in a chair in the oncologist's office. In reference to tolerability, I've seen it, you know, we're using this drug in the metastatic setting. Those patients who are taxane-naive have a better response, less side effects, than those patients who have received prior taxane therapy. Those patients who have had prior taxane therapies come back if they've already had pre-existing neuropathy and excruciating pain, and they're just not able to tolerate. It's been said by some of the investigators who study this that the neuropathy that is associated with a Braxane tends to go way quicker. Has that been your experience? I think that if we're talking about the taxane-naive patients, it may go away quicker. But those patients with a pre-existing neuropathy, it's intolerable for them sometimes. Several of those patients that we have used abraxane with who had had prior taxane therapy, it just didn't work for them. You mentioned the issue of being able to avoid pre-medications. Are there any specific patient types or situations where you have greater concerns about pre-medications? Those patients who have chronic complaints of nausea with other treatment regimens, we might pre-medicate. Patients who just seem to have greater sensitivities to medications, we might use a little bit of pre-medication, but for the most part with Abraxane, we haven't been using pre-meds. I guess what I was wondering is, are there patients, for example, diabetics, where you particularly want to avoid giving pre-medications? Oh, absolutely. And giving your diabetic patients steroids is not a beneficial thing at all, you know, we're compromising their health from another standpoint. Their sugars are through the roof days before their treatment and after. It's not a great toss-up there. A lot of people talk about the diabetic patient, but what about the non-diabetic average patient? How often do you see people struggling with problems with the steroids? Oh, often weight gain, Cushing syndrome. It's very unpleasant for these patients. They're in treatment weekly for their disease process. And, you know, physical features are very important to these patients. And it just is so unpleasant for them to know they're gaining weight and swelling up because of their steroid usage. How do people respond when you bring up the issue of Herceptin in the adjuvant setting? For those who are following the media and who are very informed, they're very excited about it. 
for those who are treatment naive and don't know about much in the research forefront and cutting-edge care, to tell them that they're going to be treated for a year is mortifying. What kind of patient education do you do for a woman about to start adjuvant Herceptin? Well, I certainly talk to them about the differences between chemotherapy and receiving a monoclonal antibody and targeted therapy. Talk to them a little bit about how we were treating patients before that we could only use this drug in the metastatic setting and what a difference it's making now. And this is a huge, a huge turn of events in the care of breast cancer patients. What do you counsel them as it relates to cardiac problems? Well, these patients are followed very closely. I talk to them about having their echoes or muggles every six months and that if in the event they have any problems that, you know, we would back off of their Herceptin and repeat their scans and go from there. Thus far, we've been very fortunate with our patient population. I think that patients who were involved in the adjuvant Herceptin trials were selected patients, those patients who had low cardiac risk factors. So as we start treating patients in the adjuvant setting, we're going to really need to implement some kind of risk assessment for these patients, and they probably should be monitored more closely. It would behoove us to monitor these patients more closely than every six months if they are high-risk patients. What kinds of questions do you think a nurse who's providing Herceptin over that year should be asking their patient? Number one, which would be a crucial indicator of what kind of medical history the patient has, what kind of medications are they taking? Do they have a cardiologist? Have they been seen by a cardiologist? Things of that nature that we could map out a history that a patient would forget that they've been treated for congestive heart failure three years ago, but they're on Lasix. You know, red flags for us as medical professionals to recognize this patient has a greater risk factor than the patient sitting next to her who's not taking any medications at all. What about cardiac symptoms? Are there any that you think should be routinely asked about? Absolutely. Shortness of breath, edema, fatigue. Absolutely. I think there needs to be some sort of routine assessment of these patients, especially if they've come off anthracycline-based treatment prior to the Herceptin. If these are higher-risk patients to begin with, with other comorbidities, cardiac-related, they need to be followed closer. How do you see women, when you're talking about long-term therapy with Herceptin for a year and having to come in for treatment, when they're getting hormonal therapy, we were talking about the aromatase inhibitors, they're going to get it for five years, maybe even more than that. What about the issue of compliance with long-term oral therapy? I think that compliance is a large issue for all individuals taking any form of medication. Compliance with vitamins is an issue. I think most of these women, though, who have been treated in the adjuvant setting are so conscious of their health after going through what they've gone through and living through their biggest fear that it probably becomes very regimented for the most part. You probably have a select few who fail to come in for their follow-ups and these would be your population you'd have to worry about with compliance. Any sort of red flags that would make you pay more attention to compliance? Any questions you routinely ask patients in that regard? You know, essentially I'll ask them how they're doing on their medications. You know, are they having any complications with their medications? Are they taking it in the morning or are they taking it at night? You know, if they're not taking it at all, they'll have a pause before they need to answer that question. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. Do I take it at day or take it at night? No, I'm not taking it at all. I think compliance, you know, is a concern with any medication, though. But I do think most of these women are more self-conscious about their health than somebody on an antibiotic. I think that it's going to be certainly trying for healthcare providers to keep their patient on treatment 
for a year. And it's going to be a huge obstacle that we need to really be prepared to embrace and prepare our patients for because when you come in and you're told you have cancer and you're going to be treated with chemotherapy and then you're going to receive another drug called Herceptin for a year as a patient, you want to be in, you want to be out, and you want to be done. To hear that you have a whole year of treatment, I think, is going to be an obstacle in the community, and I think that we need to be working on ways to be proactive in preparing our patients for these situations and set up support systems. I think it's crucial, similar to the extra support system for those patients who are on capsidabine. These patients are followed by a nurse who calls and checks on them to see how they're doing. I think that support systems need to be put in place for these patients if we really want to get them through a whole year of Herceptin. That's interesting. You know, I would assume most of these people have relatively few symptoms or problems from the Herceptin. They do have relatively few symptoms or side effects. I don't think it's side effects related. I think it's the endurance of having to come back, even if it's every three weeks for 12 months. That's a long time. What specifically do you think can be done to help these people? I think a support system should be implemented, either nationally, locally, or through your cancer centers, one way or the other. I think your best role models are your patients who have just finished their year on Herceptin. These are people whose voices need to be heard, who these patients who don't think they can make it another week, you know, they're not coming in one more time for their Herceptin, to talk to somebody who's gone through their year of Herceptin and hear their side of it and how they got through it. I think that would be of great significance. I really do. This question of it being a challenge to get through the year, a lot of times people don't necessarily always talk to patients. If our goal is to treat them adjuvantly with the year of Herceptin, then we really want to keep these patients on course. And we talked about compliance with oral medications, keeping a patient compliant for a year of coming to the doctor's office every three weeks may be an issue for a percentage of the population. Certainly not the larger percentage of the population, but it's something that I think we need to be prepared for rather than have to respond to after the fact. So you're saying that there are a fraction of people who maybe just start not showing up for appointments? Or they just say, I quit. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm trying to focus on some of the newer things that are available to the breast cancer patient. And one that's sort of on the way, I guess, since it's not really FDA approved for breast cancer yet, is bevacizumab or Avastin. What's your experience been with that agent in breast cancer? We've got several trials going on now, ribbon one and ribbon two, which is a first-line metastatic and second-line. So far, uh, patients, we've had a good response. You know, whether or not some of them are in the placebo arm, I don't know yet. But um, It's kind of a good sign that you can't tell. It is a good sign. That trial is looking at different types of chemo with or without bevacizumab. Correct. And it's double-blind, so you get an infusion, you don't know if they're really getting the Avastin or not. Correct. That's interesting, and you can't tell just by talking to the patients whether they're getting it or not? For a couple of them, you can take a relatively good guess. What about their blood pressure? Does that usually go up? Not traditionally. I mean, the patients who we've seen problems with their blood pressure had pre-existing hypertension, but nothing to the point where it was considered to be a hypertensive crisis. How about nosebleeds? Some reports of nosebleeds, yes. How about the way they feel? I mean, it's not chemotherapy. Does it have generalizable kind of chemotherapy effects? No, not at all. We do have a couple of patients that we are treating with Avastin and chemotherapy off-label who we've seen good results with. What's your experience been with fulvestrin or Fazlodex? I know you all, like most breast cancer places, are very 
intensive about using hormone therapy as long as possible. Where does fulvestrin fit in? It fits into that population who have failed on tamoxifen and on other AIs. I think for those patients, once a month injection, we've got a protocol going on actually with higher dose of fulvestrin. We'll see how that kind of plays out if those patients seem to do better than on the 250 a month. If we're talking about issues of compliance, then coming in for an injection once a month is certainly very beneficial to the patient. For those women who have an ungodly fear of any form of injection, it's probably an unpleasant experience. What do you find with the injection itself? How is it tolerated? I think for the most part it's tolerated well. I'm sure it's unpleasant as the injection's being given, but for the most part patients don't have any discomfort afterwards. What about side effects, vasomotor symptoms, things like that, with Fazlodex versus, say, tamoxifen or AIs? Some of the side effects reported are maybe a little bit similar to the AIs, a little bit of arthralgias and hot flashes, but it's a toss-up. There are very few medications at this point related to hormonal therapy that these patients don't experience hot flashes. By the time they're on their fulvestrin, it's part of the pattern. Have you observed people improving their quality of life on endocrine therapy and fulvestrin, specifically responses, et cetera? Yes. Yes, especially for those patients who had been receiving chemotherapy weekly to come off of chemotherapy and go on an injection that they receive once a month is certainly an improvement in their quality of life related to A, side effects, and B, time in the physician's office every week.